This is the Sex and Psychology Podcast, the sex ed you never got in school and won't get anywhere else. I am your host, Dr. Justin Miller. I am a social psychologist and research fellow at the Kinsey Institute and author of the book, Tell Me What You Want, The Science of Sexual Desire and How It Can Help You Improve Your Sex Life. What's the first thing that comes to mind when you think about the city of Berlin, Germany? There's a good chance that many of you pictured a kinky nightclub. Berlin is world famous for a lot of reasons, but its nightlife is one of the biggest draws. In fact, it's estimated that as many as one in three visitors to Berlin go specifically for the clubs. So what is Berlin's club scene really like? I'm going to give you an inside look today. When I was there to teach my study abroad course a few months back, we took a tour of some of the clubs, for academic purposes of course, and it was eye-opening. So let's talk about it. In today's show, we're going to explore how Berlin became a hub for kinky clubs and discuss what it's actually like inside two of Berlin's most famous spots, specifically the Kit Kat Club and Berghain. We'll also take a look at how consent works in a sex club and how the clubs in Berlin deal with the issue of maintaining privacy when everybody has camera phones. We'll also give you some pro tips on getting into one of these clubs because they're known as being notoriously difficult to enter. I am joined once again by Jeff Manis a social scientist, speaker, tour guide, sex educator, and freelance writer living in Berlin, Germany. Since 2018, he has been running his critically acclaimed guided tour, Berlin's History of Sex and Augmented Reality. This year, he launched his additional guided tours on the story of Berlin's clubs and Berlin's queer and trans history. This is going to be an amazing conversation. Stick around, and we're going to jump in right after the break. Explore your kinky side with Beducated. Their library of online courses featuring more than 100 hours of content can help you level up your intimate life and explore new sexual possibilities. Their courses can be completed individually or with a partner, and you can learn about a ton of topics, including kink and BDSM. For example, their Dominance and Submission course runs through everything you need to know, from consent communication and negotiation, to ideas for things to try, to aftercare. It's full of practical guidelines to help you and your partner get exactly what you want. The content is created by experts, and there's so much to learn. Try all of their courses today for free, and if you like what you see, you can get 40% off the yearly pass by using my last name, Miller, as the coupon code. There's also a 14-day money-back guarantee. Check the show notes for the link, and be sure to use my last name to get your discount. Enjoy! The Kinsey Institute's Art and Artifact Collection contains thousands of items from around the world spanning more than 2,000 years of human history. You can check out some of the items in the newly opened Kinsey Institute Gallery on the Indiana University Bloomington campus, which is open to the public from 9.30 to 4, Monday through Friday. You can also find two Kinsey Institute art exhibitions at the Wilsig Erotic Art Museum, located in the heart of South Beach in Miami, Florida. Check the show notes for more information or visit kinseyinstitute.org. Okay, Jeff, let's talk about sex clubs. So Berlin is an amazing city known for many things, but a lot of people associate it with nightlife and specifically with clubs that are open all night where supposedly anything goes. Now, we're going to talk about what the club scene really looks like today in a little bit. But before we do that, let's step back for a moment and talk about how this thriving nightlife scene came about in the first place, because I think it's fascinating. And it actually had a lot to do with the Berlin Wall that used to divide the city. Now, 
this was one of the many fascinating things I learned by taking a tour with you. So tell us a little bit about this. What role did the Berlin Wall play in leading the city to become this nightlife hotspot? I'll try to make it short because it's also a long answer, but it actually goes even back to before the wall when Berlin was already divided, but the wall was not standing yet because Berlin has uh, no curfew. Um, so clubs sometimes stay open for days and people also go clubbing sometimes for days. Um, and the no curfew policy dates back to when the city was divided before the wall was even standing because East and West Berlin were kind of fighting over like who's the coolest city, let's say, quote unquote, um, by by extending their curfew hours um, always one hour further than the other city to lure them into the other part of the city. And um, yeah, and then at some point there was just one hotel owner in uh, in Berlin who had enough of this, and he then pitched to the Western Allies this idea of completely abolishing the curfew. And um, by two to, to one vote, um, uh, to, I think it was France and the US who voted yes, and uh, Great Britain who voted no. The curfew was then abolished in West Berlin, and that's still the case today. So that's the reason why still today Berlin has no curfew. But it was, of course, before the wall um, was even built. Um, but then during the wall, um, the wall itself also played a huge role because then um, in the 70s, uh, modern Berlin's modern club culture slowly started to develop. And then when the wall fell in, the, in 89, there were just all these abandoned buildings everywhere, especially along the former Berlin Wall and in the former GDR, like, for example, old warehouses that were just abandoned for sometimes for decades because it was the GDR, it was a communist state, there was no need for, for warehouses. So there were a lot of young people that were going into these abandoned buildings and just illegally open clubs um, in those buildings. Some of these clubs now illegally exist today. But yeah, the wall actually played then a huge role in, yeah, in the formation of Berlin's modern club culture as we know it today. Because it was here after the fall of the Berlin Wall that all these these clubs basically opened that we know today. Yeah, it's so fascinating, you know, that there was this tug of war between East and West Berlin. Who could be cooler? Let's keep our <laughs> bars and clubs open later. Yes. And then the wall falls and there's so many spaces that are available that people just kind of move in and create these pop-up clubs. And yeah, it creates, really sets the scene for the nightlife stage that there is today in the city. So let's talk about some of the most iconic clubs in Berlin. Now, different people might have different opinions on this, but I think Kit Kat is perhaps the most famous club, at least amongst people I know, because every time I tell people that I'm going to Berlin, one of the first questions they ask is, are you going to Kit Kat? And surprisingly, I've still never been there. <laughs> but I did see it from the outside when you gave us our tour of the club scene earlier this year. And on the outside, it doesn't look like much. You know, it's a pretty nondescript black building, no windows where you can see in. So paint a picture for us on in terms of what it looks like inside. You know, what does KitKat look like? What could someone expect to see or experience if they visited it on a given night? I think KitKat is more like an amusement park for adults than just a club. I think that's the best way to describe it. Um, it has, uh, of course, uh, dance floors. It has, um, depending on how many are open, up to five dance floors. It plays mostly, not only, but mostly electronic music, techno electronic music. Um, but then it also has a swimming pool. There's a sauna. There's a candy store. Sometimes there are live concerts um, in the club. Uh, sometimes they have a jazz band playing jazz music by the swimming pool. Um, 
And then, of course, it has many different kinds of play areas for all kinds of kinky play and sexual play, sometimes also with professional people working in those areas. Sometimes you might see somebody hanging from the ceiling in bondage. So, yeah, that's, I would say that's the overall vibe of, uh, of KitKat. It's more like an amusement park, I would say, than just a club. <laughs> A candy store and play areas <laughs> and five dance floors. What, what more could you ask for? <laughs> <laughs> yes. And people do also sometimes spend uh, two days there inside the club because it's open from Saturday night to Monday morning. And, and you can basically stay the entire time at KitKat. I mean, that's fascinating to me because the idea of going out to a club for like 36 hours sounds exhausting. I I, <laughs> I wouldn't be able to make it quite that long. <laughs> um, but so do people sleep there or do they stay awake the whole time? Like, uh, how does that work if someone's visiting? Well, I guess some people, yes, they do. You can also go out of the club, get a stamp on your arm, go home, sleep for a couple of hours and go back to the club. That's definitely a possibility. You will cut this out, if I guess, if, if I cannot talk about this. <laughs> <laughs> but of course, uh, drugs play also a big role in that. Like, um, I find it very interesting because they did a study on, on another club, on Berghain, which is also a very famous sex-positive club. And I think what they said in that study also applies to other clubs in Berlin. They were Because they were asking the regulars at Berghain um, what substances do they see as negative or what drugs do they see as negative or deviant. And the two substances, like there were many substances that they named, but two substances that were named the most were um, GHB, GBL and alcohol. Alcohol, GBHB, GBL, of course, because it also can be used as a rape drug. And uh, alcohol, because uh, when you have other cities where there's no curfew, like Paris or, or or London or whatever other city, people sometimes go out, they try to get wasted quickly before the, the nightclub closes. And that doesn't work in Berlin, where you have actually no curfew. So people go out and they want to last long because the clubs are also open long. So people don't consume that much alcohol here compared to other clubs, maybe. And instead, sometimes choose other substances that make them then also last longer and uh, so yeah so you either have those that go home and sleep and then return to the club or you have those that um, that actually use the uh, substances or a third one also um, that you do is uh, you like because clubs are open during the day you actually have Berliners that sleep from like, on the Saturday nights um, and then they wake up early on Sunday have breakfast and then they go clubbing and um, that's also a thing that Berliners often do. Yep, it's just a whole different world. <laughs> it doesn't happen here where I live in <laughs> Indianapolis. But yeah, it's so interesting to learn about that, especially about, you know, differences in terms of substance consumption. I think alcohol, you know, certainly it's part of a big reason why I've got, you know, like a time limit when I go out because I have a couple of drinks, I start to get sleepy. It doesn't matter how, many, how much Red Bull you take to counteract it, it just doesn't work. You're just going to fall asleep at some point. Now, another very famous club, in Berlin that you mentioned is Berghain. And it's regularly ranked among the top clubs in the world, and it's become this very popular destination for the rich and famous. Lady Gaga held an event there. Claire Danes went on Ellen's show back when it was on the air and called it the best place on earth. Uh, apparently, Elon Musk tried to go there last year, although he was allegedly refused entry. He tells a different story, though. <laughs> now, uh, attached to Berghain is also another club called The Boratory, which is a male-only establishment that some people have described as Berlin's most extreme sex club. So tell us a little bit about Berghain and The Boratory. What are those clubs like inside? I guess the origins of Berghain go back to another club called uh, Bunker, which is one of those clubs that opened after the Berlin Wall fell in uh, one of these abandoned buildings. Because Bunker actually was a bunker built by the Nazis in the 40s, and then it was turned into a club 
in the early 90s. And I think this already captures quite well the spirit of Berkheim because Bunker was then already a club where people really went to to explore with their sexuality, to explore with new forms of, of sexuality. So at Bunker, there was also, they organized a party called Snacks Club, which now still um, is hosted at Laboratory and Berkheim. And the people who um, organized the Snacks Club then later went on to open Ostgut, another very gay and sex-positive club. And then afterwards in the early 2000s, they opened then Berkheim um, as the as the successor of Ostgut. Um, and Berkheim, while it came out of the gay community, um, it's now open for everybody. Um, and it is really, it's often referred to as one of the best clubs in the world. And it's especially famous, of course, also for being sex positive. It's very different from KitKat, where like a KitKat, you have more dedicated play areas um, that you don't have, you don't really have that at Berkheim. Um, you still have dark rooms, like in many other clubs in Berlin as well. A dark room is something very common, but the sexuality is a little bit different than, than at KitKat, I would say, where you have more dedicated play areas for that. But it's also a place where a lot of people go to to explore with uh, their sexuality. Um, like also in the study, people have, have told uh, that they experienced for the first time gay sex for the same first time straight sex they discovered their bisexuality they had their first bdsm experience their first time public sex their first time sex with strangers all these things that at berkheim so it's of course also a very famous uh, club for that and the laboratory um, attached to berkheim is uh, basically the going back to the roots of the club as being a gay male only club um, and uh, yeah it's often referred to as the most sexual club uh, in the world today or the most hardcore sex club in the world today and uh, has then regular parties like Thursdays are usually naked parties Fridays you have the two drinks for one and then on Saturdays and Sundays can be special themed kink and fetish parties and this can be anything from water sports to suit and tie to loop parties where there's small swimming pools filled with loop um, to sportswear like basically really any anything you can imagine you will find a party for the head laboratory <laughs> <laughs> pools filled with lube that's actually the second time this has come up on my podcast before it came up on a previous episode where one of my guests was talking about how for their birthday one year they had like a a swimming pool filled with lube and they were going to do a photo shoot in it and you know sounded great in theory but once they got in you weren't really able to stand up because you just kept falling <laughs> over. So yeah, one of those things that might might sound great in theory, but might be a little bit dangerous in practice uh, just because, you know, lube by nature is pretty slippery. Yeah, I've never been to that party. I can't say from experience. Um, it's, I've only read it on their, on their website. I don't even know if they still have the party, but at least it's, uh, it's on the website of the different events that they already had at the laboratory, yeah. Yeah, so there are definitely a lot of uh, kinky events that happen in Berlin at various places, not just at Laboratory. Uh, you know, I remember the first time I went to Berlin, I went into a gay bar and had a beer and I picked up one of the magazines that was sitting there and I was flipping through it. And at the end, like there's this whole list of sex parties like taking place at every hour of the day, every day of the week, you know, so it was something catering to everybody, no matter what your interests were, no matter what time of day it was, but it was very regimented. Like it would be like, here's an after work party from, you know, five to 7 PM or what. And so, you know, when, when you go to these parties, like you got to be on time or you got to be early for it, right? It's not the kind of thing where you show up fashionably late to a sex party, right? 
Yeah, especially with laboratory, for example, the club is only, you can only get in during two hours and afterwards they don't let people in anymore. The party continues, but you can't get in anymore. So with parties like these, yes, you have to be um, there at a specific time. But you also have the other side, like you also have parties where you can just show up at any time, like Burkheimis, uh, you can get in at any time of the day or night during the weekend. Um, um, also places like KitKat, like I said already, um, like uh, there you can just go, of course, also anytime you want. Yeah, but I think the the rule of thumb for a lot of people in the U.S. is you don't show up at a party early. <laughs> but <laughs> if you're going to a sex party in Berlin, maybe maybe show up a little bit yes. early. Holy <laughs> <Yes. laughs> Now you mentioned uh, dark rooms as being present at a lot of clubs in Berlin, and I think it's true of Europe more broadly. Like dark rooms don't really exist in the United States. In fact, I can't think of one that I've seen going out and about at different clubs throughout the country. But they're just ever present in Europe. So for my listeners who might not be familiar with what a dark room is, paint a picture for us. What is a dark room? What happens in there? So a dark room is usually like, like it can be a, a different kinds of things. Like usually it's like a back room kind of thing um, where it's just a bit darker, where people go to have sex. Um, but in some cases, like it can also be an entire cellar, downstairs area where you had actually several rooms connected to another. You could still call it the dark room, even though it's like more rooms connected to another. So it can also be, it can something be very small to something very big. And yeah, it's something that's actually very common in many bars and clubs here, here in Berlin. I remember when, when I went to New York for the first time, and uh, that was before I knew about how exceptional Berlin was with this sexual culture. I went to New York and I, and I thought, oh my God, I'm going to the big city of New York. It must be so, so much worse, quote unquote, than Berlin. And then I went bar hopping this one night and I realized in the, in the third or fourth bar that I was... Um, Huh, I mean, I'm now in the third bar without a dark room. Must have been the only three bars without a dark room in New York until somebody then told me, no, we don't have these things. I'm, so, it's, I'm just so used to it from, from Berlin because actually really a lot of bars, a lot of clubs, especially gay bars, queer bars, um, but also clubs in general, it's just common that you have a dark room somewhere. Yeah. Yeah. So interesting, like to just do like a cross-cultural analysis of like the sexual scene in different countries. Uh, that's one of the things that I really enjoy about my job being a sex researcher is just when I travel, it's just picking up and noticing these things and kind of how they're different from one culture to the next. So never a dull moment <laughs> in that <laughs> no, line of work. I can imagine, yeah. Now, an important question I want to ask about sex clubs in Berlin is how consent works in those spaces. I wrote an article for the Archives of Sexual Behavior a few years ago about consent in sex clubs because almost everything that's written about consent is about how it happens in a private two-person environment. But when you're in a setting where sex happens publicly and where there might be more than two people involved and there might be an anything goes kind of mentality, you know, that's a really different set of circumstances. So tell us a little bit about the politics of consent in Berlin sex clubs. It's, of course, a very important uh, thing that you have to talk about, or that you have to have some form of communication about, even when you're in a club, even when you're in a dark room, maybe especially when you're in a club, or especially when you're in a dark room, because when so many more people come together um, to enjoy sexuality, then, of course, uh, some form of communication around consent is important. That, form, that communication can be different from place to place, and also different communities have developed a different form of communication. Like, for example, when you go to a gay place, a male gay dark room, a communication 
communication is very often done um, with body language, with eyes, um, like not so much in, in talking directly to another, but much more with body language. Um, while you, when you go to maybe other more mixed parties, it can definitely also be more with the language communication, um, like speaking uh, communication. So that really depends on what communities you you go to. Um, uh, they have all developed different forms of talking about consent, which doesn't mean, however, that it's always working very well. Like you also have um, uh, again and again also stories about sexual boundaries being crossed, um, about in some cases also rape. It's more rare, but it also does happen. Um, the clubs usually have a very strict policy with that, although there are also instances where clubs are sometimes criticized for things that they do. But overall, I would say that the, the policy is just that it's there's a lot of discussion happening, a lot of debate happening, not only during the sex, but also outside of the sexual setting when the community communities themselves are discussing and debating with one another how can we make sure that the sexuality that is happening is consensual in our spaces. And some and some communities come to other conclusions than others. That's always really depends on what people you are that are actually engaged in, in the discussion. Yeah. And as you were speaking about that, I was thinking about how the cultural piece plays into this where, you know, for locals in Berlin or in other European cultures where you might have a more sex positive sex club kind of scene, you know, they might be accustomed to how consent communication happens in that context. But I read a stat before the show that about one in three visitors to Berlin is going specifically for nightclubs. And many of them are coming from the United States or other places where we don't have as much in the way of these big sex clubs. And people might not have like that experience of, you know, how does consent work or know like the rules and norms of it. So, you know, I have to wonder to what extent, you know, when you have, you know, a big mix of people, some who are locals who know the norms and customs, and then a whole bunch of outsiders coming in who don't know them and who might just be going thinking everything goes and they get wasted, you know, have too much to drink. Like you can see how that can kind of set the stage for certain troubles. I think there are, there are like a few things that the people that club organizers or party organizers do to counter that a little bit. First of all, are of course, the bouncers. Um, like when you have, for example, a group of drunken men coming to a club, usually that's already a bad sign um, to get in. Like people will usually not get in um, when they already arrive at the bouncer and are like uh, super drunk and look like they are just trying to get into a club to grab some women or so. Like, and that's already usually a sign that the bouncer will usually say no to them. Um, again, it's not absolutely bulletproof. There have also been instances where, where things have happened, but um, but it's again already one step that um, many party organizers take. Um, the second is, for example, that some parties or clubs um, hang out guidelines or rules on uh, how consent work. For example, recently I was... Um, at the whole festival, the whole festival is a festival organized by the queer community in Berlin. Um, outside, uh, it's a bit outside of Berlin. It's a weekend-long festival where they also had um, signs, for example, put up everywhere on the festival grounds um, that were also addressing consent. For example, one rule that also sometimes party girls um, hang out is like, if you see something, say something. If you see problematic behavior, come get the responsibles at the club, at the party, and talk to them. Uh, so these are, for example things that like how they try to make sure that everybody gets on the on the same ground on the same level 
Yeah. It's so interesting thinking about how all this stuff operates. Uh, and something else related to this is that, you know, in the U.S., anytime you visit a bar or a club, no matter what kind of bar or club it is, you're going to see a lot of people on their phones and a lot of them are going to be taking photos. Now, in a club where sex or nudity are permitted, that presents an obvious issue. You know, someone might take photos of you without your consent and then post them online. So how do Berlin's clubs deal with the issues of cameras and phones? Berlin clubs see themselves as safer spaces, especially for, for marginalized communities, also for people to explore with their, their sexuality. And one way that clubs try to make sure that they are safer spaces is that one third of clubs in Berlin do not allow pictures inside inside the clubs. For example, at KitKat, you must give up your phone when you go, especially when you go to the Saturday party at KitKat, the quote unquote real KitKat party. You have to give up your phone. They will ask, "Is your phone in your in your jacket?" When you give it up, um, they will make sure that you don't take a phone inside the club. At clubs like Berghain or Tresor, for example, they will put stickers on your phone's camera. So you get inside and they will put stickers on your front and on your back uh, uh, camera of your phone. And they have people working in the club who also always continuously check that people are not taking photos inside the club. Um, at Berghain, if you are caught taking a photo anywhere inside the club, they will immediately throw you out of the club and you might be even banned for a few weeks or months even. Yeah, and they also have, like, for example, Berkheim also has a social media team. They have an Instagram account, which uh, sounds a bit counterintuitive when you're club that doesn't allow photos. But they don't. They only have one photo on that account, which is a photo saying taking photos is not allowed. And they have a social media <laughs> team who also regularly scans. Maybe not a team, but they have somebody who regularly also checks uh, social media if uh, somebody has um, posted something, a, a photo of inside Berkheim, maybe wasn't caught taking a photo inside Berkheim and then posted it. And then uh, they will immediately contact that person, ask to have to acquire the photo removed, and that person will also be usually banned from entering Berkheim again. Yeah, you know, I actually really like the no phone policy, <laughs> not just for that reason of, you know, it can protect people from consent violations, but just because it encourages you to be there in the moment and not be sitting on your phone. And I think all of us might be a little bit happier and more have more fun when we went out, no matter what kind of bar or club you're going to, if we could just take a break from our phones and really just immerse ourselves in the moment. It's an example for what Michel Foucault called the heterotopia. The uh, French social scientist Guillaume Robin um, made this study about Berkheim that I just told you about. And he refers back to Michel Foucault with this no-photo policy of calling Berkheim a heterotopia in terms of that heterotopia is a place that just breaks with societal norms, um, usually at the margins of society, and ritualizes the non-normative behavior. And this, and like usually while you have in the outside world, um, like this, this typical... Now you could say maybe Instagramification of your life, where you take pictures and selfies constantly of yourself to present yourself to the outer world. That norm is completely ignored at places like Berghain um, and actually punished in places like Berghain. Like you're not allowed to do this. So I found this, this way of examining it a little bit with Foucault here and calling it a heterotropia quite interesting. Yeah, I, I think we need more of those heterotopias just in general where we can take a break from technology. Now, Something else I'm curious about is how Berlin's clubs have changed over time. I've read a few articles claiming that the club scene is declining and that some have closed. Some have been forced to move multiple times because of gentrification. I think KitKat has moved about three times in its history. Some have started to become a little bit more about the music and dancing and less about the sex and play. So what's your impression of how the scene has changed in recent years? Is it struggling like some of those media reports suggest or is it still thriving? As a local, what's your take on it? 
I see a little bit of both, I would say. Um, like on the thriving side, I would, for example, say I live right across from KitKat. So I see the queue in front of KitKat every weekend from my balcony. And I've rarely seen the queue that long since after the pandemic. It's uh, like there are a lot of people coming still to Berlin to go to these clubs. The clubs are really still a very, very important economic factor also for the city of Berlin. But on the other hand, it is true that a lot of them are struggling. The pandemic was very, very difficult for them because they were closed for basically almost two years and uh, but still had to pay the rent and had so many costs that they had to pay. They were um, partly saved by government money, but partly also by the communities who wanted to save their clubs. But then also so now the inflation is also causing a lot of problems for them. The costs for everything have, of course, risen. And while before the pandemic, you were sometimes able to go to one of those major Berlin clubs with, with just 10 or 15 euros, they now cost 20 or 25 or 30 euros. Um, so, of course, their prices have also sometimes in some cases doubled since before the pandemic. And it's not that the clubs just want to make a lot of money, but because they really have a lot of costs now also that they need to recover from. And then, of course, gentrification also plays a huge role. Berlin or Germany has done a very, very important step in 2021 um, to officially recognize nightclubs as cultural institutions. And since they are recognized as cultural institutions now, they are now politically on the same level as, for example, theaters or concert halls. And like previously, they were on the same level, like, for example, brothels or casinos. So they had no protection whatsoever. And now they have at least some protection, which doesn't mean that they cannot be, uh, completely be driven away by gentrification. That still happens. And um, we have already clubs, uh, like, for example, Griesmühle was a very famous club that um, uh, became victim of gentrification, where they were now build office spaces there. And some of the parties that were happening at Müller now went to a club called Revier Südost, RSO in short, um, which is very much out of town. It's very far away from the city center. And that's a bit the fear that many people have, that more and more clubs will be driven out of the city center by gentrification to the outer skirts of Berlin. And it's by no means uh, are they safe now just because they are now finally also recognized as cultural institutions. Yeah. Oh, and it's so fascinating and highlights yet another cultural difference that the German government would declare sex clubs to be cultural institutions that are, you know, have protections like theaters and other uh, organizations do. Super, super fascinating. It's because you have very often also DJs playing inside those clubs. And, um, and Germany, just like the, the German fiscal court decided a DJ set is in the sense of what is culture, not different from like somebody playing the piano in a concert. It's the music that they produce and therefore it should be recognized as musical production and therefore as culture. And therefore it's uh, clubs are also recognized as cultural institutions, no matter if there's also sex happening or not. That does not play a role whether you can classify as them as cultural institutions. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely fascinating. Now, we're running short on time, but I have one more question for you, which is for my listeners who might be thinking about visiting Berlin and checking out a club or two, what do they need to know? So we know that some of Berlin's clubs, like Berghain and KitKat, are known for being notoriously hard to get into. And I mean, since you live across the street from KitKat, maybe we can just you know email you to get a sense of how long the queue is, and you can tell us when a good time to go is. But in all seriousness, I'm just curious about what should someone know in order to increase their odds of getting in? I think we've talked a little bit about some things like don't show up wasted and don't use your phone inside the club. But what do people need to know if they want to have a higher likelihood of getting in and you know be acting in accordance with the local club etiquette? 
Well, first of all, there's no one solution fits all. Like different clubs are different, work differently. Um, at KitKat, for example, this, especially the Saturday party, you have to have a kinky outfit for that. You will not be able to get into KitKat on a Saturday without some form of kinky extraordinary fetishy outfit um, um like you need to put some imagination into your outfit and it will also not work if you say i will just be naked like it doesn't work you need to have a proper really outfit for burkhine a kinky outfit for example can be helpful but it doesn't guarantee you entrance and um, burkhine is a little bit different uh, different when it comes to that and there's no 100 safe answer that will definitely get you inside burkhine there's always the risk of not being able to get into Berkheim. I once got in with jeans and t-shirt into Berkheim, even though a lot of people say that will never work. And I once was rejected with fetish gear at, at Berkheim, at the Berkheim door. So you really never know whether you will get it or not. But overall, I would say familiarize yourself with the club culture, with the clubs in Berlin. What do they mean to the people living here? Why are they safer spaces? Why do they have this no photo policy? Learn about a bit maybe also about the music they play, about the DJs that are playing that night. And while that's still no guarantee, I think that's the best way of how you can yeah, get a sense or a feeling for the clubs and therefore also not be so, maybe not be so intimidated then in front of the bouncer when they might ask you questions about the club. Yeah, and make sure you know the opening hours or entry hours because some places have limited hours of arrival and there can be very long lines. So it can be another reason to want to get there early. So lots of things to think about. It, it's not just as simple as, you know, I'm going to go visit Berlin and I'm just going to show up at a club. You need to think about the culture, the scene all around it to make sure you know what you're getting yourself into and also so that you can increase your odds of getting in. But as you mentioned, you know, there's no guarantees with some of these iconic clubs where you're going to have thousands of people trying to get in, you know, on certain nights of the week. Mm, exactly. Yeah. Well, thank you so much for this amazing conversation, Jeff. It was a pleasure to have you here. Can you please tell my listeners where they can go to learn more about you and your work and the fantastic tours that you offer? Sure. So all my tours uh, can be found at berlinguide.de. Um, that's my website, berlinguide.de for Germany, Deutschland. Um, and uh, yeah, and there you can basically find all my tours about Berlin's history of sex, uh, the clubs in Berlin and Berlin's queer and trans history. Well, thank you again for your time. I can vouch for your tours. They are fantastic. And I will be sure to include a link for them in the show notes. Thank you also to my listeners. To keep up with new episodes of this podcast, visit my website at sexandpsychology.com or subscribe on your favorite platform where I hope you'll take a moment to rate and review the show. You can also follow me on the socials for daily sex research updates. And be sure to check out my book, Tell Me What You Want, to learn more about the science of sexual fantasies. And be sure to check out Jeff's tours if you ever happen to find yourself in Berlin. Thanks again for listening. Until next time. Mm-hmm.